The following is a conversation with Kyle Grant, a Queensland hunter, deep thinker, and a man who has an interesting way of motivating himself towards becoming a better hunter that I think you might be interested in. During this conversation, we talk about the value of an animal's life from a hunter's perspective, as well as from a community perspective and how those metrics are always changing. We talk about the objective truth in hunting and what may be right for you, but not potentially right for someone else. We also touch on his interesting way that he views self-development and self-growth and motivation using negative self-talk to propel himself forward. And finally, Kyle also brought up a video that I, well, a controversial video that I published and then five minutes later took down. He saw it, had some interesting thoughts. We dive into it. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. It's fantastic. There's a lot to be learned from it. I encourage you to check it out. I will say at one point in this video, there is a little bit of background noise in Kyle's recording. That's just because he's a new father. He has a young family. There's some cooking happening in the background life happening in the background i encourage you just push through the sound goes away and gets back to normal it's definitely worth listening to and lastly so much of what we talk about revolves around community and personal growth and development and if you're interested in those things as well as connecting with other hunters potentially winning a free guided hunt or going on a hunt with other members check out the australian hunters club australianhunters.com.au it's a fantastic way to support this podcast support what i'm doing as well as support yourself anyway without further ado Onto the conversation with Kyle. Kyle, I want to start with a poem. Uh, it's called Death of a Deer by Nicola Lablis that was written in 1954 and it goes like this. I followed my father uphill through the fir trees and hideous branches are hurting my skin. Today we'll be hunting, a deer will be hunting, the hunt of starvation and sorrow and sin. I'm thirsty, my father commands me, be quiet. How limpid, O oh water, you're quivering by. By thirst I feel bound to the innocent creature that laws notwithstanding is going to die. She sprang into sight at the end of her leaping and peed all around her and listened for sound. With delicate nostrils she touches the water and silvery circles start gliding around. The moonlight reflected with cherry tree blossoms, her fairy-like presence, a radiant spot. If only my father's old rifle misfired, if only he'd bungled and blundered the shot. But there was thunder. She knelt on the pebbles. She gazed at the stars for a final adieu and fell in the water with blood rushing downstream, a last imitation to places she knew. I stumbly shambled and shut down her eyelids on eyes whence forever her life would retreat. I startled and staggered when father with gladness and joy in his voice uttered, now we have fresh meat. I'm thirsty. My father allows me to drink now. How turbid, O oh water, you seem to subside. By thirst, I feel bound to the innocent creature that laws notwithstanding has already died. But laws have lost their relevance and core. When life is not given anymore, traditions and compassion, worthless foam. When sisters lie ill and dying back at home. My hand is feeling something in the weeds. A little bell in my mind just barely heeds. Now from the grill, my father sets aside the roasted kidneys and the doe's dear heart. And what's a heart? I wish to... Just living would be fine. Oh, maiden, please forgive me, you dearest dear of mine. I'm drowsy. Oh, the darkness. The flames are flying, fleeting. What is my father thinking? I'm sobbing. And I'm eating. The first question I have for you, Kyle, 
is can we have our ethics and eat them too? <laughs> what do you think? It's an interesting one. Um, so I know that modern society would like us to believe that, I guess, we shouldn't. We, we at least shouldn't enjoy the uh, enjoy the kill and in doing so, we should try and take a somewhat moral and ethical um, path that's superior. Yeah. And I guess it's a burden that we have for possessing cognizance, but I don't know. I don't know. I, I think that the more and more we're honest with ourselves at a far deeper level, I think it's it's almost natural for a man to desire that, if that makes sense. Man and woman or man, man? Man, man and woman, of course. That's okay. Um, oh, okay. I'll, but I'll obviously, clarify. Yeah. Yeah, it's 2022. You've got to be very, very careful. <laughs> Especially as hunters. Look, I think it's, I think you're very true. And very, there is a, there is a burden to bear. And I think that poem actually does a, a fantastic job of kind of highlighting the reluctance to that burden and yet uh, situation and circumstance, which demands it. Like the poem's alluding to the fact that, you know, times are hard and there's a you know a sister that's dying at home they need to feed they need food and yet this this person is struggling with the hunt they're struggling with the ethics the choices that they have to make or even that they're that they're separate you know one step separated from with their father taking the shot and at the end i love it because there's this beautiful kind of kind of summary in that there there is the death and there is the sadness and there is the weeping and then there is the questioning and yet like, I don't know about you, but when I hear that roasted kidneys, heart, roasted kidneys and the heart, like it's the way that it's written almost, it's like, like this, this the taste buds, like you, it's like, oh, there's something wholesome. There's something about that, that it's something primal and connected and communal and, and, and it's not just for you, it's for your sister who's dying. And like, the, like, but that justification is so strong in the, you know, the, the sphere outside of hunters, the non-hunters in the world. Um, but it's even strong even within hunters. And, and recently I've had, I've had conversations with people who who question whether it's okay to be okay with killing, whether we need, whether it is a burden. Um, what do you think? Do you think, break when you said that it's a burden, break, and you said it's a burden of being conscious, break that down for me. What does that, what does that mean? What does that look like in application? So if we have a look at every single other animal that's on this planet, everything has a tendency to, no, I, I won't say everything because, of course, not everything <laughs> 20, is Tony 23, um, Yeah, yeah ex exactly, exactly. Be, be very, very careful with what you say when it's in recorded form because you can be held to it. <laughs> um, so I, I guess because an animal doesn't possess the same level or, or that, that heightened level of cognizance and what we have, we have a, a moral and ethical obligation to make sure that we're using using our powers for good, if that makes sense. So obviously we have access to, to technology, we have access to firearms, we've commercialised hunting, we've done all of these things that really tip the scales in our favour. Mm. I mean, even if you, you, you take it right back to a, um, a very base level when you say the inclusion of firearms, um, you know, we've really stacked the deck in our favour as much as we would like to say that it's, it's really hard and it is hard hunting, say, deer, for instance, in really tough country. We still have the deck stacked in our favour. Mm. I get to go back and sleep in my swag. Mm. I get to go and enjoy the luxurious benefit of fire even. 
you know, I, I get all of these things that make it easier for me. Therefore, the taking of that life, I feel like there's a greater importance placed on uh, an appreciation for the taking of that life that's made possible by the burden of cognizance. So let me I'll, let me let me play devil's advocate because I love to, even though I agree with like ninety nine percent of what you're yeah, saying. Go for it. It makes interesting conversation, and we're here to we're here to learn and we're here to grow and expand our our minds uh, and our lives. Couldn't you just argue that the fire and the swag and like you know the the sealed food that you can then reheat, like all of these you know luxuries, are really just humans being really good at adapting our environment that there's nothing special or separate from that and nature just that we've mastered nature to the point where like a like a deer when it goes and it makes its bed that could seem luxurious like a deer's bed (laughs) to an animal that sleeps in the snow but like just sitting on the snow but to the animal, it's just like, no, I just, this is just what I do. Like, I'm just smart enough and I've learned enough over, you know, however many million years ago that if I do this, it increases my rate of survival, my fitness, my ability to reproduce. Isn't that just humans just doing that? Or is it deeper? Is there something deeper about that? No, I think it, it speaks more to our level of innate intellect and our ability to advance in an evolutionary sense far and above everything that we're competing with in this ecosystem. You know, so as much as you say that that might be luxurious to that deer, 100,000 years from now when a deer is running around with Kevlar vests and rifles <laughs> and he's, you know, suddenly achieved that same level of, um, of evolutionary benefit that suddenly we've, we've got. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, 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 like, I guess if you extend the time long line far enough, I, I'm not saying that, that the outcome would be uh, equitable and that they would achieve the same or, or even desire the same kind of outcome as to where we are. But I feel like because we've achieved such a higher plane of intelligence and we we carry this burden of looking after, uh, at least we'd hope to carry this burden of looking after our ecosystems, mm. our environment, our, our entire planet as a whole, that we also need to bear that burden of understanding the value of a life that's been taken but also accepting the fact that it's okay and it's incredibly natural to take that loss. That's fascinating because what you're talking about for some people, I mean, you're presenting it in one sphere, one one kind of idea, one cohesive thought. But for a lot of people, they're two very different things. What is natural and what is ethical can sometimes be different things. And um, your position, that at least the one I'm hearing, is because we have this elevated uh evolutionary state we have a responsibility and a burden to to manage look after everything else to ensure that it can evolve um and that is the the root or the burden of 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 the ethics that sit behind it which is fascinating because like that's most people would go to some sort of philosophical or moral position about like you know good and evil, right and wrong. But you're just saying we're just in a really pr- privileged position and so the right thing to do is that we should look after things, not because some higher power gave us that responsibility, not because there's some ethical imperative, but just be- just because we can. We're, we are empowered to do so and we should. Is that, is that, is that kind of I, like Yeah, I think, 
Yeah, I, but also think that things can be both right and wrong at the exact at, at the same point in time, you know. So, and, and I guess <laughs> I this is where God. that uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is where that ambiguity comes into play, where you say that some people and, and we'll make a fair argument that you know it's not ethical then to take that life because we have this higher level of consciousness and, and uh, intelligence that we should be able to find other solutions. I think. That can be true, but also can be removed of an underlying objective truth. And, and I know you and I have spoke about this in the past, about the, this notion of objective truth, and we don't have to go too far into the weeds here right now. But I, I guess for me, the objective truth would be a natural biological um, underpinning fact. And that is that life is certain as death is certain. And that, that that's cross-species, so that, that, that doesn't change. But because we... Because we possess the tools to be able to understand and process these concepts, that we then have an obligation to not remove ourselves from those processes, but to undertake those processes with um, conscientious consideration. Mm. That's probably a decent way of saying it. How's it? So conscientious. Con, con, I can't even say the word conscientious. <laughs> you said you said the first <laughs> word, and I'll say the second word. Con- Consideration. Yeah, yeah, conscientious. Con- yeah, I can't even say that. Yeah, oh, my yeah, gosh. Yeah, yeah. So we, which is a, sounds like another I, I another word for um, fair fair chase or fair game. Like it, it, yep. it's, it's like you engage in this system but do so fairly. Um, so I'm keen. Well, no, correct me. Well, correct can, me. I, can I push? Yeah, of course, of course, of course. Yeah, can I push back on that for a second? Because I don't know that you could make an objective argument that it is fair because as we just spoke about to start with, the deck is well and truly stacked in our favour. So let's take, for instance, like I spoke before about technology. I can drive to that state forest and go and hunt that deer. Yeah. That deer is restricted by the amount of, the amount of miles that it can travel yeah. under its own power in a day. Like I can I can go and hunt the state forest in Tenerfield, New South Wales, go and hunt over towards Sydney, and then I can drive back up and hunt on uh, property in Kilcoy area in southeast Queensland, yeah. all in the space of, you know, realistically if I want to do it in a week. Yeah. You know, so it's it's really hard to say objectively that we're hunting fairly. I, I don't believe we are. Oh, okay. But I think we also need to accept that that can be okay mm. so long as it's done uh, with with proper consideration. Okay, so you're saying there's an extra layer that consideration sits on top of fair chase, and you kind of make a decision where you believe, you know, it, what is fair and what is not, and then even within that that framework, you still need to consider. Um, so let let's dig into let's dig into those augments, those augmentations that that you're talking about in terms of driving uh, to multiple state forests within a week. Um, what, because I find this, I find this fascinating, the, the lengths that people go to, to augment their abilities to get deer, um, to get pigs, to get goats, whatever their, their target animal, their target species is, um, for you, what, what is fair for you personally? Is a rifle fair? Is a bow fair? Is a semi-automatic fair? Is a game camera fair? Is a thermal fair? Is a trap and a feeder fair? Is a game call fair? Is camouflage fair? <laughs> like, okay, keep okay going. so this is this is where it comes down to, I guess, your your own moral compass. Um, 
So for for me, for instance, I currently hunt, and, and look, I'm, I should um, preface this with saying that bow hunting is something that I'm hoping to explore in the next 12 months, and I'll become equally obsessive about that too. But at the moment, I hunt open sight rifles and vintage uh, World War One, World War Two rifles, right? Because I like the challenge. So for me, fairness is in feeling like I've deserved the spoils of my hard work. That for me is fair. Doesn't mean that it was a fair and equitable um, conflict between me and that deer. Although I don't even have conflicts with my way. Of, no, I know you mean. But but an exchange between me and the deer. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, for, for me, the value or the fairness comes down to the expectation that I place upon myself. That's fascinating. That's really interesting because I'm not sure most people think. I mean, I think most people understand what you've just said, but most people don't think about it like that. They think about the exchange and they think about they have some sort of kind of baseline of like whatever they think is fair and then you can kind of build on top of it as as kind of or you can build up to it maybe is a better way to look at it. Um, And so, for instance, I I think I would be speaking for most hunters and this is a dangerous dangerous thing to do when you record it. But hey, I'm actually, no, I'm going to retract that. I'm not going to speak for most hunters. What I think most hunters feel is fair is hunting in state forest with a rifle and binoculars and wearing camouflage. I think that most hunters feel that's fair. Um, And it's not, and I think the reason behind that judgment has less to do with some sort of abstract musing or thought of intellectual exercise and, and really comes down to how often they see the animal, how often they get to execute on the kill and how many times they get to do that every year. I think that's the equation for, it's like, if I, you know, if I kill, it's different for everyone. If I, and I'm not seeking when I say I, I mean like, like, person person a uh, when i kill like two deer a year i'm happy i feel like that was fair um uh i mean do you is that how you think most people think it i guess we're always going to be a product of the people that we surround ourselves with right and that's going to be a reflection of our own ideals so what i think would be fair and what the people who i associate with would think would be fair i guess is going to be a little bit different um you know, than, than what you might think would be fair. But I guess in an objective sense, I don't have a problem with it either. So if we're talking about a grander picture and not just my opinion, um, then I would think that there's nothing wrong with that. Is that fair to say? <laughs> is it fair to talk about fairness? Um, well, I mean, the issue is that when, <laughs> when, when a state body is trying to regulate hunting, they need to come up with some sort of framework to hold people accountable to. So whether I think it's fair or not, honestly, at the end of the day, doesn't matter. Um, it's what either the people in the democracy think is fair, ultimately, because they're going to elect the officials, or the officials who are in power who are making the laws think is fair. So, I mean, it, in some ways, your your personal... I mean, unless you want to be a complete maverick and and go and break laws and stuff, which some people do. I mean, a lot of people do. But um, otherwise, your own sense of fairness has to be limited by or at least influenced by what the state says you can do or what the state says you 
is fair, especially for instance, um, New South Wales. I mean, you guys really have some strict uh, laws around what is fair and what's not fair. Um, in Victoria, that's less so. Um, it's a bit of a wild west out here in, in some regards. There's still there's still restrictions on caliber size and and um, you know types of heads on arrows and all sorts of things like that. But I I like the depth that you have to go through to demonstrate that you understand what is fair when you go for your R license, for instance, is quite is quite considerable in my mind. So I would think that, uh, or at least I would hope that that's a reflection of some people's input that are far smarter than you and I. So yeah. um, <laughs> I've, I've got quite an <laughs> quite an association with um, uh, with science, by through my through my occupation um, and through my my wife, who's actually a scientist. Um, so a lot of this kind of stuff, so specifically my, my industry is horses and I haven't personally, but a lot of my colleagues have done a lot of, um, work with looking at animal welfare standards and I guess an objective, uh, I don't want to say an objective truth, (laughs) maybe it's the best way of saying an an objective truth in the right and wrong way to handle these animals. So creating a, a welfare framework in, in which to operate within. And I should hope that those kind of inputs are reflected within uh, New South Wales DPI. I, I'm not in, intimately familiar with New South Wales DPI or their um, procedures, same as Victoria. Um, but I should hope that even if people are saying that they're, or, or you say that they're quite hard and they're quite stringent requirements to strict uh, to stick to, I would sincerely hope that they're reflective of what's considered a an ethical. Mm. You know, we spoke about ethics before, mm. a, an ethical way in which to conduct yourself while carrying out the hunting of these animals. Yeah. No, I, I think they are. I, like when I say that they're strong, um, and I've said this openly a number of times, so I'm happy to go on the record and saying it, in that I think what um, the New South Wales DPI is doing is is fantastic. And uh, I think the framework that they've built around hunting in New South Wales is is uh, should be the gold standard for every single state. Uh, it a lot of people disagree with me on that. Um, Victorians <laughs> disagree with me on that because they have this. We don't listen to them anyway. <laughs> we, we in Victoria, we have this kind of mecca of hunting where there is no reporting. Um, any man and his dog can go out into the high country or any other state forest in in the in the, the state and do kind of whatever you no, whatever you want. That sounds ridiculous. But uh, in contrast to DPI, whatever you want. Um, and I worry that it's a glass house that seems fantastic when you're on the inside, but the second that a rock is thrown and those, those walls will come tumbling down. And I would rather have clear and concise frameworks that restrict within a reasonable boundary than no frameworks at all and complete freedom and then lose it. I, and I think everyone wants to whinge about government, about rules and about legislation. or And, you know, you can talk at a governmental level or even an association level. People don't like being beholden to those rules. Mm. But at the end of the day, I, I guess I'm far more cynical than most in the sense that if you say you have open slather, my belief would be that it's, it's only a matter of time before the amount of idiots who abuse that privilege mm. start to outnumber or, or start to become representative of the entire industry as a whole. Yeah. 
Um, and that's not something that I want to partake in. You know, I, the reason I got into deer hunting, so I, I used to do a lot of shooting. I grew up shooting when I was a kid. Um, not so much hunting, more shooting. And I was living on a property out uh, west of Kingaroy there. And, you know, there's only so much, so many times you can go out root shooting and things like that before it's, you know, before it starts to, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's not something that I found, I guess, you know, going back to talking about taking a life, I I didn't feel like I was living up to the burden of expectation that I had on myself, or or at least that I felt like we should have on everybody by going and doing that. Mm. Sure, there's there's an argument to make for the, the... control culling of these animals on properties and everything like that. I have no issue with that. But me personally, I didn't like that. But when I started to get into deer hunting and I like I'd go out time and time and time again and I didn't get a bloody thing. Like I didn't even see one. You know, and, and granted I'm a moron and it takes me a lot of time to, to you know I don't pick things up easily. So you know there was a lot of failures. But it was it was the fact that this was all so what I would consider ethical, but also the people that I started to find myself surrounded by in deer hunting were very, very different from your average Joe Blow with a rifle and a shotgun out on in the middle of nowhere. And it just, it appealed to me. And that's not a judgment call on people who sort of live in that other realm. But for me, I didn't want to be associated with that. When I started to find deer hunting, I found a very different class of people who were more likely to be in say uh they were in more skilled um workforces Mm. they were more likely to be um owning their own businesses more likely to be high flyers i guess you'd say high achievers and those are the kind of people that i love surrounding myself with and as a consequence i tend to find that those people at least in my experience are the more ethical of the the bunch is that fair to say it's your opinion. You can say what you want. I, I think. Oh. I, I think that uh, I'm curious about your perception around that, and I wonder if um, I wonder if the nature of the hunt being difficult and deer being somewhat elusive or difficult to hunt in general uh, forces a, a certain individual to persevere. Not forces, facilitates a certain kind of person to persevere through that. Whereas something like pig shooting, for instance, or pig dogging um, is a different kind of hunt because it it's not as difficult. Um, well, I mean, I don't actually, you know what? I don't know if that's true. I've never done pig hunting, pig dog hunting before. So I don't know if that's true. Um, from what I've perceived, it doesn't look as difficult. Uh, and that could be false. That could just be a false perception, but it doesn't seem to require the same level of skill and dedication um there's definitely skill in managing dogs there's definitely skill in managing a high pressure tense situation there's definitely skill involved getting up to a crazy boar who is thrashing around and could split your guts open and trying to take a you know a a pig sticker and you know and, and finishing the animal cleanly i'm sure there's a great skill in that but but it's a skill that um can be practiced and managed uh very quickly and often it seems if 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 you know where to go whereas with the deer unless you're shooting the only exception to that rule is if you're shooting on a high fence property and you're paying um and and then i would even argue that you're not practicing deer hunting you're practicing shooting um at shooting an animal 
um, because you know they're not they wouldn't be hard to find. You can sneak up on them pretty easily. Um, so sorry, just just on that, I, mean, I was just thinking as you're talking about that. I, w- I was going to say that I would be hesitant to make a judgment call and say that that isn't hunting, but the more I think about it. No, I think I would make that call and say that it, you're 100% right, that it isn't hunting. That for me, and I don't even think for me, like what's the point in doing that if there's no challenge in it? And I guess it, it depends on where you put your metrics, where you put your goalposts for success. Mm-hmm. But I don't understand the drive for somebody to go and shoot just for a head for clout to go and be able to brag about in a high-fence property where someone had been feeding it maize for the last seven days and they knew exactly where it would be. For, there's no that there's no pursuit in that. There's no effort. There's no it, it, reward has to be the product of a, a, an expensive effort. And I don't see, I think that that's a, that's a null equation there. There's no yeah. expense in effort to do that. Therefore, the reward is superficial at best. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's important to clarify that all, all high fence properties are, small enough that the deer are in predictable areas have predictable patterns not all high fence properties involve the feeding of animals i know i know of a lot of high fence properties where they're basically free range they do whatever they want they don't get fed they just survive or they die um so and i know and i know of free range properties that are like tens of thousands of acres uh, and that very much feel like you're hunting in state forest you've just got a better chance so it's not a, it's not apples and <clears throat> apples and apples. Um, it's there, there is a difference, but I do get your point. I do understand it. And, and this is something that I've personally had to walk through recently in that I've done, a, I've done two now. Well, one, the first one I did wasn't, I mean, I, we did a little bit of hunting, but, but I never got to pull the trigger cause we got interrupted. <clears throat> And I didn't actually even know that we were going to be doing that until like five minutes before it happened. So I wasn't prepared. The second hunt I did in Water Valley in South Australia with Paul Convery, and that was very much going into it full knowledge um, that this is what's going to happen. But going back to what you said before about the challenge and the different metrics that you measure, for me personally, I got a lot out of that hunt on that high fence property because the challenge wasn't in the stalk for me. Um, the challenge was in executing that kill th- the best, cleanest way I could. It's like, it's, it was almost like, <laughs> it was, all, it was like shooting, but, but there, you're shooting an animal, which is not hunting, but it's, but there are, there's an overlap and it's like, let's remove all of the variables that are involved in the hunt so you don't have to worry about those. You're not measuring yourself up against those. So I wasn't measuring my stalk. I wasn't measuring, you know, how good I was at glassing or reading sign or anything like that. All I was measuring was my skill with the rifle and my shot placement under a difficult, like a long range, difficult shot. Um, and I, and I'm happy to say under a lot of pressure, I nailed it. And that felt awesome. And I felt like I achieved something in my hunting journey that while it wasn't a hunt and it probably wouldn't be fair to call it a hunt, it, it added to my hunting experience and my hunting knowledge and my hunting skill set. And, and in a really shallow sense, 
and I'm happy to be shallow sometimes when, when, when it serves the greater narrative of my life, but in a really shallow sense, it kind of gave me a little like token, like a little bing, like that I can hold on to and be like, I nailed that shot. And then next time, the next time I actually shot a deer, I absolutely bungled it. I, I felt I, I still, I still um, dropped the deer, but I spined it and I felt terrible. And then we had to follow up with the next shot and I felt bad about that. So in those two instances, yeah. um, just, just to push on that a little bit, yeah. in those two instances, which one did you learn more from? The one that you bungled or the one that you got to put in your cookie jar? Which one were you less likely to, uh, to have a negative outcome on again mm. in the future? Mm. That's hard to say. Um, so uh, I know that mm. you and I have touched on this before in the past, and, and I think that for me this speaks volumes to the mindset that I try and adopt with hunting. I want it to be hard. I want to struggle. Yeah. I, I want to hate myself every second of that <laughs> because I, I, want, I want to see that I don't live up to an expectation that I have of myself and I want to use that as fuel to, to do better each and every time. So for me, in those two instances that you're just describing, the lesson would be far greater in the failure than it would be in the success. Like success for me is something, it's, it's water off a duck's back. I, I really try not to live on those successes. I'll stand on that hill for just a minute second and then I'll go straight down the other side of it because if you, if you dwell on it, I mean, we've all heard, yeah, I'm sure um, you would have had friends in high school or at least gone to high school with people who, you know, they, they were going to make the footy team and they were going to play for the, the AFL or the NRL or something like that. But then they did their knee. That's the peak of that person's life in a lot of instances. Mm. They, they will never again be as good as they once were. And I think that's the consequence of living in the shadow of your achievements as opposed to striving to shed light in the darkness, yeah. which is what I'm always trying to do. I'm trying to go on those hunts and I'm trying to suffer as much as I can so that I can so that I can better myself. And I motivate myself through that by hating myself <laughs> for not living up to these expectations that I hold. Because I'll, I'll never live up to them. Yeah. Never. If I ever live up to them, I'm just going to quit. That's it. Yeah, you see, this is this is really interesting because I, I know that we differ on on this in this position um, and, and I'm keen to flesh it out and going to get to the root of both of our positions, hopefully for me, I find personally, and this is, a, and we talk about growth, but I think we're always talking about the personal styles of learning, the personal application of learning. It's not a one fit all for everyone. So this is, this is me, what works for me. If I, I can see, I can find a lesson and I can find growth in almost any situation. Even when I feel like I've absolutely nailed something, um, which is very, very rare. Um, I can still find something to take away from it because I always want to be growing. I feel like if I'm not growing, um, I'm not static. I'm actually going backwards. And my loved ones around me depend on me growing for their sense of happiness and well-being. And also I, like it's, it's, this is my life. This is my story, my narrative. And I want to grow. I want to feel happier. I want to be better. And so I, I try and find a situation, uh, I try and find a learning opportunity in every single situation. And my experience is if I come down too hard on myself, I rob myself of that insight or that, that lens, my lens kind of focuses down and I, and I, and I spiral into that negative self-talk and I start closing doors that otherwise I could have 
opened and peered in and had a little look and been like, oh, there's a lesson there. I kind of just get um, just a bit of a negative Nelly. In fact, I've experienced it recently. Literally, like I've been sick for the last two days. And I said to my wife, Amy, I said, I don't, the, the thing I hate most about being sick is not the sickness itself. It's not the effect on my body. It's the effect on my mind. I find that I just get incredibly disheartened. The world starts kind of turning into shades of gray and I find it difficult to motivate myself to do things. And I'm like a super optimistic person. Like I see the light everywhere and and I, and I walk around kind of like wearing my heart on my sleeve and I'm happy to take all the hits in the world if for the sake of growth. But when I get sick, I get really um, melancholic and really disheartened. And so if I was while I understand your position and I'm happy and I, and I agree in that I a hundred percent want everything, not everything. I, I, I value the, the, the grind. I want it to be hard. I want to feel like I've earned it. That's, that's where the greatest learning opportunities are for me. If I, if I go too hard, then I rob myself of learning. What do you, I mean, it, what do you think about that? Do, have you found something similar in your own journey where you've, you've been too critical of yourself? No, I don't think I can ever be too critical of myself because I'm just a perpetual screw-up, mate. Um, <laughs> when, when do you get I, to I the think... other side, though, then? Where, where, where's the silver lining? Where's the, where's the pot of gold? Where's the learning opportunity if you're always being – how about you tell, tell me about the story about that red deer that you shot? So that one is that, – that, that's my favourite deer that I've ever shot. And, um, you know, people will absolutely laugh and crucify me over it. It was like a – what was he? A double two in velvet. So absolutely nothing. Okay. Absolutely. Something that you wouldn't even own up to ever shoot. A dud. Now, yeah, yeah, a complete dud. Matter of fact, it was probably a, a bad thing to have, have shot it. Um, the reason why that deer meant so much to me is that that property is in the middle of the most inhospitable terrain that I've ever hunted in my life, just thick with lantana. And lantana, two metres high, wall to wall. Occasionally you'd get a site, um, like a laneway of 50 metres, but they would be so rare. Um, basically, you were never going to get a shot at a deer unless you just happened to, to, to be lucky enough to find one at the right time. So I hunted that property for 18 months. So the, the bloke who owned the property um, gave me and another bloke rights to hunt on it. Um, as far as I'm aware, I was the only one that was up there. So the other bloke um, just never made it up there. I hunted that place for 18 months. Now, I'm mad about my fitness. Always wear a um, uh, like a Garmin wristwatch that's got all my tracking metrics on it. So I used to keep track of how far I'd walked on there. So over 18 months... Well, 176, 174, sorry. I don't want to complain it here. 174 kilometres on that place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to talk myself up. Um, 174 kilometres I walked on that place without even seeing a deer. Found a few tracks sometimes. Other times I'd find no tracks. Like at at this stage, I was convinced there just wasn't any deer there, but they just, that all vanished. They were gone. Mm. Um, Well, it was either that, they were either gone or... I was just that shit <laughs> that I scared every deer off <laughs> in a four-kilometre radius. So, that, I mean, they were my two options. They're, they're, there's, you know, what else do you do? So I had my brother up there with me this weekend, and um, he is kind of similar to me but very, very different, probably a little bit more like you than me. Um, 
definitely not not quite as hard on himself as what I am on myself. And um, so we hunted all day on Friday afternoon. Then we hunted Saturday morning. About lunchtime came, hadn't seen a damn thing. So he had packed up and he said, look, I'm going to go back. He had, had his um, son with him and that. Uh, sorry, yeah, uh, my son. He took him back to um, spend a night with his grandmother. He said, look, you know, we're, we're going to go back. Do you want to come back? And I said, no, 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 I'm going to stay out here one more night. Just, just, just one more night. Like I wanted to try a few different things. I felt like I, I was honing in on my bushcraft skills and on my stalking skills that in, in this country that I, I might stand a decent chance like to just set myself up right. So I went and perched up at 4.35 o'clock in the afternoon, went perched up on the corner of an opening in some heavy brush and just sat there. And I sat there for 45 minutes just getting my ass chewed out by mosquitoes. <laughs> and um, the whole time thinking, oh, I'm going to see one, I'm going to see one, I'm going to see one. And then I thought, bugger it, no. It's starting to get dark. I'm not going to see one. So I'll start walking back. I thought, no, 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 I won't walk back. I'll, I'll take the long way back here. I've got a headlamp with me in my backpack. If I find anything, I can walk back in the dark. Bugger me dead, I mustn't have walked like 800 metres uh, down off this track, rounded this corner. But before I'd rounded it, I just caught up this little whiff, just a whiff I of the deer straight away. Stag. I love getting I that I knew smell. it was a stag. Oh. And before I'd seen him. So I knew that there was something there, or at least there had been something there yeah. before I'd seen him. And come around the side of this big tree, Shouldered. I had my old, um, you know, shameless plug for my old old rifle collection. I had my old um, 1945 Car 98, re- rechambered in 762 NATO. So, coolest thing ever. It's a, uh, a German rifle that was then given to the Israelis post war. So, I've got my Nazi Jew rifle there, slung over my shoulder. Yeah. And um, as, I've, as I've come around, sighted this stag, shouldered it up, took a shot, and thought, there's no way I'd hit that. Like, it was just a split second snapshot yep. like that. Seen him run off into the scrub and thought, bugger it, I've missed it, I've missed it. I'm not, I'm not going to get a chance to chase after it now. That's far too thick, that scrub. I just won't get it. I thought, bugger it, I'll just go and have a quick look. Sure enough, I walk about, it must have been like a 20-metre shot, walk into the scrub where I thought that I'd seen him. It must have been two. The one that I shot at was dead, dead as a doornail within 90 seconds. Wow. When I had a look at him, it was a perfect heart shot. Yeah. I couldn't repl- could not replicate it again. And don't... Make no mistakes, I'm not a ter- terrific marksman. Um, this was just the, the perfect confluence of event. And I, I hit this thing. Obviously, it was his mate that ran off. Yep. And I'm not an emotional person. But if I wasn't on the verge of tears, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd be lying. Yeah. I had a look at him. I spent probably five minutes just kneeling down beside him, yep. looking at him. Yep. And it wasn't so much that I'd got this deer. It was this sense of that hard work paying off, enjoying that for a moment and then thinking, okay, next thing, let's struggle, let's cut this thing up and let's start packing it back to the camp. It's yeah. about three kilometres away. Wow. Do, do you, do you, did you feel that sense of elation and wholesomeness because you didn't cheat? Like, did you feel tempted over that period of time to cheat, to bring out a thermal? Did you have access to a thermal? Did you use game cameras or were you doing calls or did you feel tempted to do those things? No, just because I'm useless. Like, that, that, that just wouldn't have crossed <laughs> you, my you're mind. You were just like, I'm just going to pe- pursue this relentlessly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the thought, multiple times I had the thought that, you know, 
I just I need to move on to a different property. I'm never going to get anything out of here. What's the point in even trying? Yeah. But I'd seen enough science to know that there was something there. And for me, what it boiled down to was that, right, this country is super, super hard. You're not going to get a clear shot of a deer here. If you, if you get one here, it's going to be because you have stalked this thing without even knowing that it's there. You've stalked it so effectively that it hasn't heard you, mm. that it hasn't seen you, and that it hasn't smelt you. And that is so hard to do when you can't see more than, yeah. you know. Oh, if you got on a good roadway through that property, maybe you could see 150 metres, but that's that was so sparse. Most of the country that you're going through is way overgrown tracks. So I knew that if I got one, it was going to be well and truly earned. And it was that, it was the hard work, the, the suffering for me that I wanted. That's what I needed to fulfil me in that hunt. Yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I um, I do have that negative self-talk um, that I use in a positive way sometimes when I'm out hunting. And specifically, it's about um, that confluence of events, that trying to get the, the trifecta. It's like trying to see the animal and smell the animal before it sees or smells you or hears you. And I can't you can't help but second guess as you spend a long amount of time in a single spot um in in a, in a single like event and you've walked like three or four k and you've been like that three or four k behind me is completely stuffed like you hear that all the time they're like absolutely stuffed i've completely you know blown out that area of, you know it's my sense all through it anything would have completely gone and i i wonder whether that's always true like whether that is always the case and i wonder i i, I have this kind of little like fantasy in my mind that maybe is designed it's like this self kind of fantasy to to keep my spirits up that whenever i'm walking through a thick area like that lantana area that's like they're they're just like 10 meters off just bedded down and i just can't see them and i walk straight past them and they know to like just stay put and you'll be fine and i i kind of envision all of these deer just do, just doing that and i don't know whether that's true or not but that is some of my kind of self-talk that helps motivate me to kind of keep going. I mean, and but I, I have learned over the years to, to make calls on spots and be like, okay, you've hit, like I'm all for relentless pursuing an objective and putting in the time. But it's like after two years of not seeing anything in this spot, I'm like, there's better spots, Chris. Like you can still be relentless. You can still be a perfectionist. You can still work hard. Just do it in a smart way. Um, is that something? F and I and I kind of just burn that. No, no, no. That's okay. Um, I think that it comes down to why you're hunting in the first place. And for me, the pursuit of the animal is secondary to the the pursuit of personal growth that comes through the suffering. Yeah. So, uh, like, I think that's why that I'm not, I, I don't place importance, and maybe this will change, you know, but at this particular point in my life, I don't place importance on a head. Like, I, I don't, I'm not super proud about, you know, how big a head I've shot or anything like that. For me, the stories of how I shot it yeah. is far more fascinating. You know, I shot my first, uh, my first fellow stag this year down in, down around Glen Innes that had been organised, a mate. Uh, it was a mate of a mate who he couldn't make the trip and called me up and said, hey, look, do you want to go down there? So, you know, drove down. You know, I'm, I'm up in um, Lockyer Valley up in Queensland. So drove down to Glen Innes, 
to a place that I'm not familiar with, to meet people who I'd never met before, to go out and stay in the middle of the arse end of nowhere with a bunch of rifles, you know? So yeah. I do <laughs> that all the time. what's dangerous <laughs> or um, perilous about that? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But it's such an uncomfortable thing to do, you know? It's a four-hour trek down there for me, which is, you know, nothing to, to a lot of people on that. But it's more it put me outside my comfort zone and therefore there was growth to be found. So when I did finally shoot this stag after missing two shots on a larger stag, um, it's just stupid me. I've been hunting this thick country for so long that we found this stag. There was a perfectly good rock sitting here beside me mm. that I could have laid down on and used as a rest. And my dumb ass tried to shoot this thing offhand at about 100 metres open sight with his old, old rifle. And, of course, balls it. And the bloke had just been telling me how flighty these fellow stags are. So I shot the first shot and this stag just turned around and looked at me. <laughs> well, he, he stood there and looked at me after this first shot. And then I took the second shot and missed that as well. Whoa. And old mate was looking at me afterwards. He goes, I've never seen that before in my life. I said, I thought you were full of shit, mate. Like, you tell me how flighty these he things are. I've just taken two shots at it. He was like, and take I, me. Yeah, and only then did it. Yeah, only then it was semi-motivated to get out of the area. But um, after that, we walked for a fair bit more, found this other stag, spent, oh, I, I don't, I'd, be, I'd be lying if I said an exact figure, let's call it 20 minutes, um, stalking from one hillside up to the other hillside while he stood back and watched the stag, mm. got up to within 15 metres of it and shot it in the heart, you know, yeah. dead straight again, like, like that um, last one I was telling you about. Um, there was so much, so, so much thrill in that stalk. I really enjoyed all of that. Mm. And he's... he's not a terrible head for my first fellow stag and all that. But then we packed him up. I gave old mate my rifle and threw him in. I had this, this, I didn't have a big backpack with me or anything. So I just had a nice little, um, what are they called? Uh, it's like a 511 uh, backpack. I can't remember the name of them, but it's just like a normal school bag. Backpack. Yeah, yeah. I guess more And I one. stuffed. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I stuffed, we weighed him back when I got back there. Was, I can't remember, it was 25, 30 kilos worth of um, meat, limbs, everything like that in the back of this pack. Had no back brace in it, had no frame, yeah. had no um, no waist belt in it or anything, just had a, a chest strap. Yeah. So carted this thing back. Mate, I had the worst headache. This thing just cut right into my shoulders, mm. had this massive tension. The whole time, old mate's gone, you know, we can split him up, we can split him up. I said, no, no, I shot it, I'll cart it back. Granted, when I first agreed to this, I said to him, how far is this, mate, yeah. uh, back to camp? And he goes, oh, it's, it's about, uh, about two and a half k's. I said, yeah, no, bro, I can, I can hump that back two and a half k's. Yeah. Turns out when we got back to there and I checked my little wristwatch there, we'd actually done 19 kilometres for the morning. <laughs> so I must have hiked that thing back closer to about eight or nine k's. Wow. I had to stop three times and just rest it up on a stump and just give my shoulder just a little bit of a break. And I got back there and just I was absolutely elated yeah. because I was in so much pain. Yeah, yeah. And, and like for, for me, I, I was excited about having shot it. I was excited about having been able to keep that head with the you know the nice palms on it and everything. Yeah. But I was so excited that I carried that bastard that whole way back <laughs> in absolute agony. That sounds like the first. So the first deer that I shot was a uh, fellow spiker up in the high country with my brother. And um, I've told this story a few times. I'm not sure if I've told it on this channel or not, but I'll tell it to you now because it's very similar. Um, we've been hunting this system uh, for two days. And the, the, basically the way that this system works is you kind of contour around the face, down these spurs, and then um, you, bas you basically go about, oh, I'm going to say about 6K down the mountain. 
and then you kind of contour back up again and you come through this area called Samba City, which is about halfway up the spur where it um, it's like this light um, glen. Like it's it's beautiful. It's just kind of everything kind of opens up. There's a bit of water in there and it's just paradise. It's, just, it's absolutely glorious. And we call it Samba City because it's just generally full of Samba and, and fallow. And the idea is that you kind of cast your luck on the rest of the system for the morning and then when you like luck out you're like all right we're going off to Sampa city and we're gonna get get a deer today and we've been hunting for two days and my i hadn't shot a deer and my brother was being really generous with giving up his time and helping me learn and teaching me all these different things anyway we came up to um this spot in Sampa city and my brother's like all right we're about to crest this little rocky face here and we're going to get into Sampa city he's like you will see a deer you will shoot it and you will take it down and it's all going to happen very very quickly so listen to what i say and i'm like okay he's like we're gonna we're gonna go from like like a crawl to like you know inches we're moving in like inches and so we did that and we moved into this little section and he's like can you smell that i'm like i'm like what and he's like that's that's deer and i'm like i I don't know what deer smells like i'm like yeah all right i'll take take your word for it and he's like he's like okay this is what you're gonna do is you're gonna sit you're gonna sit here in front of this tree block your silhouette pull up your rifle and um and and i'm gonna do some calls and so he did that and like i chambered around and uh and then you know within like seconds of him calling you start to hear you know the hoofs and uh this group of fellow came through and, and my brother was like, all right, just wait. Don't shoot the first one you see. And it was like, just as he said that, I was like, bang. <laughs> Literally the, the second that, that, that I had one broadside, um, I shot. And, and it was terrible because there was this really nice buck um, in that group. And, he, and like literally it was like maybe 10 deer just went and just split. And I, did, and I was so um, – I was so – just pumped with adrenaline and in awe and stupefied that I didn't even like chamber another round. I could have shot two or three deer, but I just, just like just blinded. And anyway, we went over and we checked it out and it was this um, spiker. Hey, it wouldn't be more than like 50 kilos, like max kind of thing. So not a huge deer. Um, but like, I just, I just love, I just loved him. And I was so excited and happy and we'd done a fair bit of work to get to him like you know hunting all morning and then uh my brother's like all right like let's pack him up and take him back to camp and like i'm like okay well how do we do that and he's like we're gonna we're gonna do a backpack and i'm like okay i don't know what a backpack is and anyway um so for those who don't know what a backpack is and you're listening to this essentially you make incisions um between the achilles um in the back legs and the front legs and you and you basically push the legs through each other to make like a, a sling almost and then you kind of wear those hoops around you like a backpack but the legs kept falling out and so we end up getting some rope and tying it between those achilles and um it was i had that rope pushing into my back like taut into my back and we had about 4k back to camp but about 800 meters elevation and oh man did it suck like I, it was one of the hardest, most brutal carryouts I've ever done. And I, and I think I've done harder. In fact, I know I've done harder, but in my mind, that was the hardest one. And it was because I'd never done it before. And I'm putting on this brave face and I'm talking to my brother and I'm like, 
and how much longer do we get? Like, I, it was like I'd walked ten meters, and I'm like, this. I'm like, this sucks. Like, I'm not gonna be able to do this. And I was like, but I'm putting on a brave face, and we're sweating, just absolutely drenched in sweat. And we get up a hill, and I'd be like, are we close? And my brother'd be like, yeah, yeah, we're really close, Chris. Just over this next rise. And it was like totally lying. And then I think I literally collapsed at one point, and he's like, Chris, do you want me to take it? And I, no, I don't even think he asked. You know what? I don't even think he asked. I maybe I. What I'm probably remembering more so is the thought of just give it to him, just like, just just cut it up. Like you don't like you don't need to do this. And then that there's I don't know where it came from. I don't know what this voice was, but it, this thought came to my head of no, like suck it up. This is your moment to learn. This is your moment to grow. You won't have earned this unless you do it. Unless you do it, and you won't have respected this animal unless you do it. Like this is your kill. Man up, take not man up. That's a, I don't want to be, you know what I mean? Take responsibility. I, th- I, I think you can say that one. <laughs> take this responsibility and, and do it. And I did. And um, I got it all the way back to camp and um, threw it down on the ground. And like you, I, it was just this moment of like elation. And it was this shared celebration and this kind of, it's almost like at that point, my relationship with my brother was deepened like, 20 fold it was just like it just everything became that much more intense this level of trust was that much deeper to the point where in terms of my hunting journey and and experience i am the most accountable to him and he has every i i give him so much so much freedom to call me on my bs especially with youtube stuff to say chris you're being an absolute idiot your head's getting too big. You don't know what you're talking about. You haven't thought that through. Um, what you did was um, not representative of what actually happened. Oh, I, he has 100% right to do that and say that, and I've given him that permission. That's interesting. That's interesting. So, you know, we started this conversation talking about ethics and about the morality of taking a life and whether or not that can be acceptable. Yeah. And, you know, even then when you mentioned about you know, manning up how that's now not a politically correct way of looking yeah. at it. Yeah. I, I really, I, I, I push back on all of those things because I think that it 100% is. And I think it's symptomatic of, um, it's, it's an oversimplified way of, of saying, or, uh, to say that uh, we've neutered men or at least what we can potentially be. But um, it's interesting you talk about your brother doing that. And I think it, it ties in with my point here. There was ages ago. So I'd first seen a couple of your YouTube videos and that, right? I, I, I can't even, you know, the YouTube algorithm works in mysterious ways. One minute I'm watching hunting videos. I'm above with the, the next minute I'm watching a tutorial on. Pulling at the puppet strings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How much does that cost an hour? Yeah, exactly. Um, so <laughs> I'd, I'd seen a couple of them, a um, couple of your videos, and they were specifically to do with uh, hunting in state forests in New South Wales because it's not something I've got no experience with. Yeah. Um, but something I'm, I'm sort of looking at uh, getting my license doing. But interestingly, you remember when that, and and uh, this is going to be a little bit of a, a difficult one to chat about, but I, I want to go here. Let's go. Um, I'm more for difficult. Okay. Remember when the school shooting was on? Yes. I happened to be driving home from volleyball one night. It was a lot, I played a late game or something like that. So it was like, must have been like eight, nine o'clock at night. And I get a notification on your channel. So there was a video occasionally. I'm really, I hope, re- yeah, I hope yeah, yeah. This you, <laughs> I hope this is what you. Yes, it is. Wow, it okay. is. So I, I, 
I have this this constant need to not feel connected, but I like things happening in the background. So I prefer to have a YouTube video playing in the car, just sitting off to the side, even with the screen turned off and just listening to it. It makes me feel like I'm not alone, I guess. Mm-hmm. Probably should speak to somebody about that. Um, so so I, I get a notification that you'd uploaded this video and it was specifically, I can't remember the, t- the title of it, but I knew that it was something to do with this school shooting. So I switched it on. And I was listening to it and you were talking about your views on the school shooting. And basically it was a, it was a real time rant about gun laws. And I thought, oh, this will be interesting. Yeah. So a hunter, I, I wonder which take is this going to be? Cause I'm assuming that it's going to be a pro gun, you know, a take on things and everything. So I turn it on and I start listening to it. And you're basically talking about the fact that you've got children that, you know, you can sympathize. And, and at one point you're breaking down in tears. You're, you're quite emotional and worked up about it. Mm. I thought it was interesting. Like, I, I don't know that I agreed with all of the things, but mm. you know, I'm going to entertain, entertain your opinions at least. Halfway through it, all of a sudden it stopped playing. Now that you said that, was that your brother? And also, can we talk about it? Because oh, you'd uploaded it obviously with the intent of voicing your opinion with some kind of, I, I guess wanting to affect some kind of change, given the fact that you've got a platform there. Mm. But at the same time, what made you pull it? If you felt so strongly in the first place to record it and upload it, mm. and you felt like that was a good representation or, or at least a good image to portray, because let, let's be honest, you speak about hunters or you speak for hunters, whether you like it or not, anybody in the public face is going to if they're at least tangentially uh, involved in that industry. So you felt strongly enough to put it out, but then also felt strongly enough to pull it. So can we talk about that? Can we explore it? We can, we can definitely, man, this is a conversation I never thought I'd have. This is awesome. This is awesome. I'm, <laughs> it's I, the joys of the internet, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually really glad that, um, that this has come up. Uh, uh, so first of all, it, uh, well, for context for people listening, what we're talking about is the Texas shootings, uh, in, oh, when was it? It was this year, uh, 2022. Um, and it was, it was tragic. I don't know how many people got, were killed and injured, but it was like, I think it was like 20 or something. It was just, it was just insane. And, um, it was everywhere and it, it was just another shooting in a school in America. And, uh, the governor, of Texas, basically, again, go do your research if you want the truth. This is just what I remember. Um, the governor basically came out and said, uh, "the the answer is that we just need um, more security guards. Like that's that's the answer to to this issue." Um, and I just had a really strong objection to that. And like you said, I have kids, uh, and I was deeply affected by it because I just saw my kids' faces in that school. And I don't want to get emotional about it now, um, and I'll try not to, so I remain like have clarity of thought. But I just saw my kids' faces in that school, and I saw them get shot, and I had a really strong and visceral reaction, and I wanted to, um, I wanted to share that emotion, and I want to share that thought and some musings that I've done about it around gun control. And specifically that uh, when it comes to the lives of our children, I would rather have no guns and have all our kids safe than have guns uh, and and them not be safe. That was like the, the main thought. Um, I basically said I would give up hunting as much as I love it, as much as I feel it's 
positive and con- for me and I feel connected, I would give it up if it meant my kids were safe. Um, that was a long story short. Uh, I posted it and then um, I, 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 I think I think it was up for like <laughs> like five minutes maybe. It wasn't long. <laughs> yeah. It was not. I think I got about five minutes into it. Yeah, I think it was up for like five minutes and then I pulled it down and it had nothing to do with anyone else. I, I didn't tell anyone that I was going to do it. Um, I, I kind of – it wasn't spur of the moment in that I'd, I'd collected some of these thoughts in the 24 hours since it happened. And I and I often go out for a walk in the morning, and I I have like a cup of tea with me or a coffee or something, and I and I just walk and I think. And sometimes, if you watch the YouTube channel, you'll see some of those musings that I record. I literally record them as I'm walking, and I'm kind of you know um, stream of consciousness kind of thing coming out. Uh, but I I worried. Mike, the reason why I took it down, I think. And I'm happy for you to push back against this and try and flesh it out even more because I'm only thinking about this on the spot. I think I worried that people would misinterpret it. I think I worried that people would miss um, mistake my um, emotion and authenticity for theatrics. And I didn't want to demean what had happened. And I didn't want to... Um, I didn't want to incite. I I wanted to incite anger, and frust and frustration and almost rage, um, because I think what what is happening in America with gun laws is insane, insanity, literally insanity. I I I can't I can't reconcile how a country can allow their children and their citizens to get killed when the for for political maneuvering and power and profit. I just I think the American people need to to rise up against that and just say enough's enough uh and put pressure on their senators on their political politicians, their governors to stop this. And I understand the gun lobby in America is insanely powerful. I get that. But I but it's a democracy. So the power is with the people, so the people need to stand up. Um and I think I just worried that um people would take it the wrong way. And I thought more about it as well and thought, is this hunting related? And, uh, and, and the answer was no, it's not hunting related. I mean, it's, it's shooting related and it's firearm related, but is it specifically related to hunting? And it's like, well, no, it's not. And I, can you separate the two though? I mean, I thought, I thought so. I mean, that's why I, that's why I, like you said, I, I, I understand that um, by having a voice and by putting my voice out there and the, the more, my, the louder my voice gets in the, the more people watch videos and listen to podcasts and stuff, the more responsibility I have. I understand that very much so. And I'm very, I'm trying to be very careful about making sure that what I say is truthful and authentic and, um, and motivates positivity. Can that be true though? So if it's if it's specifically curated speech that you're putting out though, can that be authentic? Because uh, the, the reality is, this is why I love podcasts. Mm. You know, I listen to them constantly while I'm at work, mm. um, you know, driving in between jobs, and that is because I crave the authenticity. I want to see someone stumble through yeah. a thought process. Because yeah. the reality is, in face to face conversation, 
I don't have perfectly formed thoughts. Everything that I'm talking about here tonight is a half-assed attempt at me trying to verbalise my mind. Yeah. And, and that's the way that the life is. So things like that, even if it was, you know, let's, uh, I don't want to say let's call it, how about I would call it an emotional reaction, um, more so than a rational one by putting out a video like that, but it's also authentic. I think that it's a fine line between being conscious of the, I think going back to it, the burden of responsibility that you've got with a public platform, but also being aware that that same burden is to also be authentic and and realistic yeah. and and the, I, th- I feel like that's what's craving in all of this social media modern social media is that we're not the authentic representation of ourselves i agree and look to be, uh, i think you've you've highlighted a few things firstly that there is a time and a place and a context for different t- types of content and different types of people view different types of content in different ways and respond in different ways and expect different things from them so i agree that if if this podcast had existed at that time i probably would have uh, I probably would have rather have a conversation like this about it and had more of a, 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 a back and forth discussion with a human being that can, that can temper as well as excite different parts of that conversation. Um, my, my, my worry was that in being really raw and authentic that people, like people would, would some people would view that as, as showmanship and misinterpret my intent and that would alienate people from uh you know to me that otherwise i could reach and help and speak to and grow together with um if i didn't if i held that back so a lot of what youtube is is that dance between authenticity and curated thought um about pushing the boundaries and about being clever about holding things back um, and it is real, yes, but it is real and it is um, cu- it's curated real. That's probably a better way of looking about it. And I think anyone who thinks that YouTube isn't that is is lying because we have cuts at certain points. There's a narrative. There's a there's a sense of dynamics. There's a, a pacing and a tempo. Like I can put a certain I can use audio to make you feel a certain way subtly. Um, And what I try and do with my content is use all of those elements that aren't real to make it feel real, to make it feel more real for you in the spirit of what actually happened. Because if I don't use those things, you won't get the full experience of what I experienced because it's, because I'm pushing it through a camera. Um, And it's, it's, so we kind of use these elements and I I guess I, yeah, my my fear was like, I don't want to, I don't want to alienate people. I don't, I don't want, I don't want to come, I don't want to go too heavy. And then a lot of people go, Oh my gosh, Chris, like what? that like was not expecting that was not ready for that. And I'm, I'm sure. Uh, and I feel like I have a good idea of the kind of audience that watches my stuff. At least that a lot of people would have responded really positively to that. Whether like, like yourself, whether they would have agreed or not, they would have been like, Oh yeah, no, this, this is unacceptable. What's happening in America is unacceptable. We need to rise up. We, we need to rally our American friends, like not just like American friends as in like, you know, country, like literally friends that we have in America to take action. Um, and then some people would have been like, oh my God, Chris, really? Really? 
are you really are you getting political or really like are you really feeling that way oh wow you pulled the whole your kids card like and and i don't and i want to reach all those people as much as possible uh, and i know i know full well that i can't that that's i can't reach 100 percent, but i can be clever about moderating and managing my own uh the betrayal of what i do and betrayal of who I am and my emotions so that I can get maximum effectiveness, maximum connection. We all do that with relationships, right? Even right now we're doing it. You're doing it with me. I'm doing it with you. We are managing the perception the other person has of us in order to deepen and enrich in our relationships. We could start talking about all sorts. We could pull all sorts of skeletons out. We're not. That's that's interesting though. Can I push back on that? Of course. That's what we're here for. Because that that's something that I would – that I would disagree with because I, yeah, and granted, I'm I'm incredibly fallible uh, human. Like I'm constantly screwing. Do you know what though, Your, But that that statement is you managing what you're saying right now about about the declaration of your fallibility is you're trying to manage how I view you. It's exactly what we're talking I think about. What I. What I would say about that, though, is not that I'm trying to manage your expectation. I'm managing my own in real time. So as I'm as as I say something like that, that's um. So something like that is not not for my uh, not for your benefit. That's for my benefit as I'm working through something. So it prefaces and it puts me in the right mindset for myself to be able to unpack my thought. But uh, the reality is, it's I, I don't have. And I guess this is just my worldview on it. I don't have a dog in the fight in the sense that I, I'm not making a conscious effort there to make you like me or to for an audience or there's there's no, it's not a um, it's not an act like it, it, that's absolutely far from my mind. What I'm here is I want to discuss the hard things. I want to have the in depth conversations because I'm a selfish son of a bitch and I want to grow from this conversation. <laughs> I really don't care about your perception All or the audience's perception a, from me. A well of learning for you. Our relationship is just the playground. Uh, yeah, yeah. Look, yeah, I, I exactly I, think of me as like an information parasite. <laughs> Look, I I agree that 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 is certainly an element and a dynamic that's at play. But at the same time, I think there's levels of it, right? So there is a, a high intellectual level in which you can completely separate yourself from everyone else and just do your thing and learn objectively. But then you go down from that kind of conscious level into the unconscious and you're doing things even right now with your posture, the way that you're looking at me, eye contact, the way you're holding your hands, the, how much you're sweating, your heart rate, all of these things uh, indicators that you're doing to tell me how you feel to manage our conversation and manage our relationship and manage everything that we're doing right now. And then even at a deeper level than that, there's, there's other, you're wearing clothes. Like I'm wearing clothes. There are social norms that we're obeying so that we can. I felt like I should have, <laughs> should, should have put something on. Like we can do another one after yeah, hours if you there, want. There isn't, for those who are watching, there isn't after podcast. <laughs> I've been thinking about the after podcast <laughs> podcast for a while now where we just get raucous. Yeah. And yeah. Anyway, but yeah, I, I agree. And look, to pull it back into hunting um, or, or even back into that conversation, I, um, I was trying to manage some of those, uh, some of those elements, and I felt like that 
the way that it ended up being packaged, um, I I worried that it would do more harm than good, uh, and and that's that's the ultimately the reason why I pulled it down. Because uh, I, I hope that that you yourself and anyone listening know that I I'm the same. I want to have the hard conversations. I want to grow. I want to learn as a hunter, as a human being, as a killer, as a sportsman. You insert whatever word you want into what we do, um, and part of that is is managing how I come across. Um, I try to be as authentic as I can, but also working within the boundaries of people's expectations and people's way people behave. I'd love just to be a complete anarchist and and chaotician and just do whatever I want. Man, I would love that, but I don't think I would be effective as a human being at least to other people. Can it be something that changes and morphs as um, society or or specific ecosystems like the hunting world um, as they grow and as they sort of explore other things that were otherwise taboo? So we started this conversation talking about the morality of is it okay to enjoy killing? Mm. In that same sense, you could say that that is a poor optic in which to have a conversation for the outside world. Mm. You, know, you, you imagine if uh, you and I went on a podcast with Peter or Greenpeace or something like that and we said, no, 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 we actually both enjoy shooting deer. Like I love the power of taking an animal's life. You, you'd be labelled a sociopath and, and run off. And yeah. But does that then mean that that's not a conversation that needs to be had or yeah. that there's something that there's benefit to having in open discourse? Yeah. I think we've spoken about this before in that um, I have this dualistic worldview (laughs) where I see absolute truth over on this side and it's like right and wrong, yes and no, 5.1 and 5.2 kind of stuff. And then on the other side, I see the way the world interacts in reality and I live in the middle. I used to live far more on the abstract absolute truth side and just because I was young and naive, not well, actually, in some regards, there's a lot of wisdom in living that way because it's the truth and everyone should live that way. But um, the reality is that 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 doesn't always marry to real life. And so I live in the middle ground where those, the Venn diagram where those spheres in, intersect. And I try as much to draw from the truth and live the truth. But then I um, am, I, I, I live in context and I, and I bend and I shift and I move based on where I'm at so I can be effective. So for me, it's like, yes, those conversations need to have happen because they're, they're right or because they're the truth or because they're beneficial or because they're healthy or insert whatever you want into that equation. And so the, the question that I, that drives my actions and motivations and whether I do it or not is can, how can I have that conversation and get the result? Cause for me, the conversation by itself is not enough. The conversation, just to, to have a conversation with the Greens and say, guess what? There is something fundamentally human about killing. We get, there's, some, there's something important about killing. Um, there's something about life and death and having, and having control over, over that process that's important for human beings to master and use and understand. And animals should die for our benefit. Um, that's an important conversation to have. Uh, but but just having that conversation and then not getting the learning on the other side, not getting the understanding, not then getting 
the behavior that then seeks to change certain dynamics and laws that would otherwise facilitate that truth. If that doesn't happen, then, then, then you haven't, in my mind, you haven't had the conversation in the right way. And it's, you've actually done more damage than good. Um, it's tricky. It is. Uh, I don't know. So, yeah, so, so we differ very slightly in our worldview. So I'm glad that you corrected that comment about being naive about it because I, I sincerely hope that I'm not as naive as I once was. But um, I, I take a very, uh, what would you say, a, a very biological, um, not black and white with shades of grey, but a very um, absolutist way in judging uh, or, or at least um, adopting my sense of morality and, and virtues in the sense that, I believe that underlying everything, there is an objective truth. And I know you and I spoke about this before, about this concept of objective truth. And for some people, that's in a, a greater being, in, in a deity of you know, X, Y, Z, pick your, pick your um, choice. But for me, it's not so much that. It's just that there is an, an underlying right or wrong in everything that would be done. And I would prefer myself to err on the side of trying to live up to that expectation of right and wrong rather than catering to... Uh, some kind of uh, catering, catering to a societal context. Mm -hmm. For me, that's it's incorrect, and yeah. there's something that irks me at a fundamental level about that, about bending for something that I know is wrong. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, I just I can't do that. It, it, I struggle with that badly. Yeah, no, I, I completely understand that. I completely get that. I mean, what what helps me justify it? Not justify. That's the wrong word. What the reason why I play in that gray space? where there's societal norms and there's a cultural zeitgeist that needs to be managed and all that kind of stuff is because there are tiers to right and wrong um, and there are levels. And so uh, I'm shooting for the big ones. I'm shooting for the, the big moral values um, and to get those right. Uh, which just sounds strange and abstract, but rather than just trying to fight every single little fact truth battle. Uh, and so if I need to play in the gray space so that we achieve some of those bigger things, then I will. Like for instance, here's a good example. It's like we can spend all the time in the world arguing about whether Kit Kats should be $2.50, right? And you're telling me that the production value on Kit Kat is... 10 cents and the company ethically should make a 50% margin. Therefore it should be X amount of dollars on the shelf and we can fight black and blue. We can campaign to parliament. We can go write letters to Cabri or whoever makes Kit Kat and fight over it till we're blue in the face and spend our whole lives doing that. Or we could spend our efforts having a discussion um, at a, at the, at, within NATO about where the two countries should go at war when there's, you know, millions of lives at stake. Uh, and so then they're both true. They're both like there's, there's a moral absolute value to, to both those things that are in some senses equal, but then in others not. So in that example that you've given though, would it not be true that you're talking about two sides of the same coin in the sense that if we think about everything that we are exposed to as our circle of concern, and then everything that we can actually put our hands on and affect as our circle of influence. Mm. Think of like two bullseyes. Mm -hmm. We're still living in that circle of concern because we could sit here and talk about the morality of wars and whether or not they're necessary. Same as I, I guess 
yeah, I, I, I guess I could even make the argument that uh, we could do the same about the school shooting in the sense that it's a something that's a concern, most certainly. But can we actually change that? Mm. You know, even with your platform is, you know, is that actually going to, to make any difference? Yeah. So are we not talking about the exact same thing with the Kit Kats all over again? Well, maybe, maybe, maybe it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> it's hard. Um, like it, it, it's tricky. And, and, and I, I, I can hear the objections from some people saying for, even like if we put this back into the hunting, the hunting sphere, um, like at the moment within South Australia, there's uh, some movements going around basically banning bow hunting. Um, and some people will say, if you don't voice your objection, then you can't expect things to change. And so if you really like Kit Kats and you don't think they should be $2.50, then you need to speak up. And and that's definitely an element that uh, that whether you think you can make a change or not, you, if you want the change, you have to try. Um, so that's definitely that's definitely a factor. At the same time, a person can only do so much. A person can only be effective in so many realms. A person has only so much time. And so in, in some ways, just, just purely because of the physiological restraints on someone, you have to pick your battles. Uh, and, and you need to – it's like um, – I liken it as well to being a father in that, and I think we've even spoken about this, in that if I'm in a good place, if I look after myself and I look after my marriage, then I will be a good father. It like it sets the foundation for me then to have time and effort and energy. Like my boys today, I spent yesterday afternoon with them in the spa at their grandparents' house and then this, this afternoon with them in the spa at their grand- and I'm just stuffed. I'm like, oh, I'm so stuffed. And we get home and the first thing that Eli says is, hey, Dad, do you want to go out and kick the footy? And it's like 33 degrees outside. There's no shade. And I was just like, yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> and we went out and kicked the footy for yeah. like an hour um, because of the foundation that I've been setting in getting myself in a good place. And the, and the same thing is true with all these things is you can, you can fight for every single bit of absolute truth you want. Um, but if you're not spending the time doing it in the important things in the important areas, then you won't have that emotional capacity or time or effort or energy to, to fight those other battles. hundred percent, hundred percent. I think that when you said before, we're speaking about the, um, uh, about the concept of, negative self-speak and things like that and basically perpetual failure being a driver for me it's very easy to adopt a nihilistic worldview Mm. if you take that in isolation of growth um, or or at least take that in isolation of a larger picture so i think being able to conceptualize the circle of concern but also being able to hone in on that circle of influence yeah you're 100 percent right that that's what makes you a better person you know i've often I've often said myself that in order for our children to benefit, our, my relationship with my wife has to be paramount. Mm-hmm. You know, that has to be, we have to be so selfish in the sense that we take care of each other because if the focus is switched and it's just on the child, well, now the foundation, the stability that is that household, our marriage falls apart. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think it's triaging things, um, triaging things that you can actually influence but then also still being able to look at the larger picture of, of um, potential benefits. Yeah. 
No, so good, so good. Well, Carl, let me let me finish with a question that requires a yes or no answer. As difficult as that, Love it. that might be for you. I'm going to go right back to the start. Yes or no, can we have our ethics and eat them too? Yes. <laughs> nice. Thanks, mate, for coming on. I appreciate it. No, not a problem. Thanks very much for having me, Chris. And that's it. That's a wrap on my conversation with Kyle Grant. Look, thank you for getting to the end of this podcast. I appreciate it. I appreciate your attention. Thank you for listening to Kyle's perspective. It's definitely unique and different. And I think there's value in diversity. It kind of opens up new ideas and you might not agree with them all, but if it gets the cogs turning and gets you thinking, there's always value and wisdom to mine out of those conversations. And look, it was good for me to be kind of put on the spot as well to talk about something that I felt uncomfortable with that I then had to unpack. So that's so much of what this podcast is about is having real honest conversations and i encourage you if you are interested in having real honest conversations with other hunters check out the australian hunters club australianhunters.com.au it's a fantastic way to connect with other hunters grow and develop gain access to property potentially win a free guided hunt or go on hunts with other members it's a great place to grow anyway thanks so much for watching or for listening and hopefully i see you in another podcast or video soon bye